Wahlberg. And I'm Julie Wahlberg. We, um, we've been at Plum Creek for a while, 20 something years 20 -something probably. Years. Yes. And we've been married 34 and a half years. Yes. We came from kind of different backgrounds related to money. Yes. My parents were products of the Great Depression. My mom especially was so cautious about money and so careful and but I think I learned that cautiousness. And so I was always very careful with money and very slow to want to it didn't bother me to go buy a pair of jeans or a blouse, that was just fine. But to spend a lot of money on one thing at one time scared me to death. It just felt really unsafe to me. And I came from a poor background. And we grew up on food stamps. We got clothes once a year. We didn't have a car. We never took a vacation. Um, so when we got married and we both had jobs and we had discretionary income. A lot. <laughs> I, I would spend that. I mean, you know, we spent money like drunken sailors, so. Well, I don't know if I would say that, but, um, I mean, I think I was still cautious. Mm -hmm. And so Joe would usually be drag, dragging me along, kind of. Mm -hmm. Like the joke that early in our marriage was that if it were up to me, we'd still be living in our first two bedroom apartment and I'd be driving my 1970-something powder blue Ford, Ford Pinto. Pinto. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. yeah, and I felt like that. that's true. That She was way overly cautious, and I was like, hey, let's buy a, a brand new car. Or like, even when we went to our, from our apartment to our house, I was like the motivating driver. Let's buy a house, let's buy a house. And, uh, so we sort of balanced each other out, probably leaning more towards my spending side as opposed to her, let's be cautious side. Well, that's because you, you had this huge personality and like, it was just gonna happen. Right. Because I was gonna give in or I, I would just, it, it just worked. Yes, so, <laughs> yeah. And honestly, at that time, when we were first married, we grew up Catholic, but we weren't really practicing our Catholic faith, we weren't really practicing anything. So there wasn't like a biblical guidance or anything at that point. It was more a MasterCard guidance or something like that. You know, we were young, selfish, dumb kids when we got married. Mm -hmm. And then as we have worked on our own personal growth and as we have worked on our relationship mm -hmm. with each other, that is affected how we deal with money as much as anything else right and so that like I feel like in such a happier better place just because our relationship mm -hmm. is so much better than it was once upon a time right. and I think I've learned that you know we've, we've had a few big vacations but we don't take big vacations every year we don't have the money to do that no. just to be together for an evening and enjoy each other's company is a gift. Going to the beach is a gift too. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Julie loves the beach. To be able to appreciate the little things, mm -hmm. I think, makes life so much happier. Mm -hmm. And to be content with that. I don't think we always knew that. No, contentment's a big thing. Yeah. It's, it's like if you're always chasing, like if you look out your window and your neighbor's got another new car, right? Or, or 
oh my gosh, they just remodeled their kitchen. How can they do that? You know, how, every year you turn around, they're doing something. You can drive yourself crazy looking at what everybody else has. And, and if you can stop doing that. And we've both done that. It's oh my gosh, different yeah. things. That's totally. human nature. It's so easy to do. But, but, but it just robs all, your, all of your content. It really does. You know, some people will get like nudgings or signs from God, if you will. And I don't think that we ever got that, but just more affirmations. Like honestly, when Julie quit work, that was like, oh my gosh, how are we going to survive to me? But we have. We've survived. I would say that we have thrived and it's, and we've always even when we had, you know, one income that was half of what we had before, I, I think we've always done the right thing. We, we've given to the church. We've, I, I just think we did the right stuff. And so looking back on things, I can see God's hand in where we've got because we were faithful and he's provided for us. Sometimes we'll start talking about what where are we gonna where are we gonna go next? It's like I don't need you know, I mean it's fun to dream a little bit, but I don't need to get all caught up in that. Right. You know, I'm not going anywhere from where I am right now. Anytime I was in that whole thing. Yeah. And like you never like my dad died at sixty two of cancer. So I mean I'm not saying that's gonna happen or not to be morbid, but right. you never know. So let's let's enjoy now. Yeah, peace and contentment I think. Yeah. And then whatever happens with that. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Call me crazy, but I think we're missing some people today. Well, we got another weird weather weekend on our hands, and I know that some people couldn't make it in safely, and I do want to say hello to everyone who's watching online through Facebook Live. Glad you guys can connect that way. But I'm also grateful that some of us are able to be here together in person and I'm grateful that Joe and Julie Wahlberg shared a little of their story. They, they did a great job introducing today's sermon, which is called The Art of Contentment. And we're in the second week of this series called How to Make a Monster Listen, which is about learning to let God control our finances so that money won't be a monster in our lives. Now, there are plenty of people out there who are happy to give you advice about money, but we are looking specifically to God and we're looking to his word because that's the only way to get to the core of our money issues. Your financial situation is always tied to what's going on in your heart and God is the only one who truly understands the human heart. So let's dig into scripture and I do have a challenge for all of us this morning. Uh, our challenge is to try to understand the person who gave us this quote. Listen to this. It says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now that is an amazing statement, isn't it? It comes from the Apostle Paul, and he wrote these words to a group of Christians living in the town of Philippi. 
And there's no question that Paul's attitude here would be very uncommon in our culture. Why? It's because this guy doesn't seem to care about comfort. This guy is is not driven to accumulate more wealth and more stuff. Apparently, he's just content. Whatever happens. When he's in a time of prosperity and he has more than what he needs, he's happy about that. But Paul is also content even when he falls on hard times. He's content even when he doesn't have enough food to eat. How does that work? Somehow, Paul learned how to be at peace no matter what he has or does not have. And this is our challenge. We need to figure this out. How did Paul master the art of contentment? What was the secret? He said he learned the secret, but what was it? Well, as we start here, let's, let's begin by looking at the current situation in our world. In the United States in 2019, we really struggle with this idea of contentment. Our tendency is to want more and more and more, even when we can't afford it. I heard a statistic from Dave Ramsey that illustrates this very well. Dave said that most Americans are convinced that they have an earning problem. They just need to find a job that pays more. But Dave said, no, the the problem is not with our earning. The problem is with our spending. He said the average American spends $1.33 for every $1 earned. Now, math was not my favorite subject in school, but even I can tell those two numbers spell trouble If we spend $1.33 for every dollar that we make, we're going to find ourselves in a hole that just gets deeper and deeper. And the truth is, that's exactly what is happening. Look at credit card debt. According to one recent study, as of June of last year, the average household in the U.S. carried a balance of $15,482 in just credit card debt. That's not including home mortgages, student loans, car loans. That's just credit card debt. And in this study, people were asked why they accumulated that debt. And a few of them gave reasons like unplanned medical expenses or emergencies like that. But those answers were the exception. The number one reason people gave was this. They said, I'm just spending more than I can afford on unnecessary purchases. So in other words, we want what we want, and we want it right now. So we buy on credit, and we dig a deeper hole. Now, I want to repeat what I said last week. In this series, we're not going to beat ourselves up over what we have or have not done in the past. This series is about looking forward and looking to God because he can take us out of the present situation and lead us exactly where we need to be. But in order to get there, we can't just keep doing what's normal. And There's no doubt about it. In our culture, consumer debt is very normal. Anywhere from 70 to 80% of Americans are in debt. And many of us feel like That's just a way of life. We say, yeah, I know I have too much debt, and I know I don't have enough money saved up, and of course I don't like it, but it seems like that's the way it is with everybody else, so it's just normal, right? I'd have to agree. Sure, debt and financial stress and worry, that's all very normal, but normal is not 
good. Normal is not the path to contentment. If we want to learn the secret of being content in any and every situation, we have to learn to be weird. So let's retrain ourselves. Weird is good. Weird leads to freedom. I heard a preacher named Justin Miller say something that's very true. He said, financial freedom requires knowing when to say yes and when to say no. We've got to say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things. But why is that so difficult? Why why is it so easy to get this mixed up? Well, part of the reason is that we are bombarded with advertisements that are designed to undermine our willpower. Everywhere you turn, somebody is whispering or even yelling into your ear with a simple message, and the message is this, buy stuff, buy stuff. They don't care if you have the money. They don't care if you need that particular item. They just want to get paid. So when it comes to finances, the world tells us to say yes when we should say no. So now how can we counter that message? Well, I want to read a passage of Scripture that speaks to this very issue. It's another one of Paul's writings, and it comes from the book of Titus, chapter 2, starting with verse 11. And Follow along with me as I read this. It says, For the grace of God, and remember that word, grace. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we talked a little about grace last week. Grace means that God offers us a gift that we don't deserve. Uh, We deserve punishment for all the ways that we've sinned against God. But Jesus came, and he went to the cross, and he took the punishment that we deserve for our sins. So now, when we accept what Jesus has done for us, when we give our lives to him, God gives us forgiveness and salvation and the promise of eternal life. And that gift is what we call grace. But that's only phase one of grace. It doesn't end there. Phase two happens once you've established a relationship with Jesus. That's when God keeps growing and transforming us into the people he wants us to be. And that growth also happens by grace. It's another gift that we don't deserve. And did you see what happens according to verse 12 here? God's grace teaches us to say no to worldly passions. His grace teaches us to learn self-control. So this is how we counter the message of the world. Ads will tell us to say yes when we should say no, but the grace of God teaches us to say no when we should say no. God's grace teaches us the art of contentment. Now, I've been using the word contentment this morning, but I haven't really defined it yet. And I want to make sure we're all on the same page. I'm using a definition that I got from a preacher friend of mine named Dave Allgaier. And here's what Dave says. Contentment is when you are at rest on the inside right now as things are. And that sounds like a relaxing place to be, doesn't it? We all like the idea of being in that place. But once we get there, it's hard to stay there. And I think the difficulty comes with those last three words, as things are. 
How can I be at rest if I don't like things as they are? Well, remember our challenge this morning. We're trying to learn Paul's secret of being content in every situation. And we've already established that the world does not want us to be okay with things as they are. The world wants us to buy stuff. But why is it that we're willing to listen to the world? And and, and what is it inside of us that keeps us from being content? Well, there are two contentment killers that live in all of us. Two things that make us unhappy with our current situation. One is internal desires. I want what I want, and I want it right now. The second contentment killer is external comparison. That's when I look at some other guy, and I see what he's got, and I think, hey, how did he get that? How come I don't have what he has Man, nothing will steal your sense of gratitude and contentment like comparing yourself with others. So we've all got these two things, internal desires and external comparison. But I should mention that both of these things are very natural for all of us. God made us this way. We all have desires, and that's okay. If, if I have a desire for food, that's not wrong. i got to eat to live, right? And you know, even comparing ourselves with others can be appropriate. Comparison can be a tool to sharpen each other or challenge each other. But problems begin when these two things are not kept in check because they can easily lead us into some unhealthy attitudes and unhealthy behaviors. I want to show you a video that it, it illustrates exactly what I'm talking about. And what I'm going to show you is a research project led by a guy named Franz DeWall. And DeWall was working with monkeys, and he noticed this behavior that was very interesting. Uh, the first thing to know is that these monkeys were brought into an enclosure, and they were taught to perform a simple task. The monkeys were taught to pick up a rock and give it to a researcher. And if they perform the task, they get a reward. The reward is a piece of cucumber. And here's another thing you should know. These monkeys, they love the cucumbers. They would eat these cucumbers all day long and be completely satisfied until until they see another monkey get a grape instead of a cucumber. Now, in the video you're about to see, I want you to pay attention to the monkey on the left. And I want you to identify the exact moment when this monkey loses his contentment. Let's check this out. The one on the left is the monkey who gets cucumber. The one on the right is the one who gets grapes. The one who gets cucumber, note that the first piece of cucumber is perfectly fine. The first piece he eats. Uh, Then she sees the other one getting grape, and you will see what happens. So she gives a rock to us. That's the task. And we give her a piece of cucumber, and she eats it. The other one needs to give a rock to us. And that's what she does. And she gets a grape. And she eats it. The other one sees that. She gives a rock to us now. Gets again cucumber. <laughs> Did you catch it? It was pretty subtle, wasn't it? One second, this monkey is perfectly okay with things as they are. 
But when his neighbor gets that grape, desire and comparison killed his contentment. Now, obviously, this tendency is not limited to monkeys, is it? Uh, It's in us, too. And man, when you get our internal desires working with external comparison and you throw in advertising, the effect can be powerful. In fact, let's try a little experiment here. By a show of hands, I'd like to ask, how many of you own a TV? How many of you own a TV? Okay, just about all of us. Now, I have a follow-up question, and you don't have to raise your hands for this one, but how many of you are aware that your TV is inferior? Well, I don't mean to be offensive, uh, but I do have to tell you, and, and maybe you've already seen this, but Samsung unveiled a new product at the Consumer Electronics Show about a week and a half ago. Samsung has this TV that they call The Wall, And the the top-of-the-line model is going to have a screen that's 219 inches. Can you visualize how big that is? I want to help you. i got a tape measure here. And when I stand on this bench and hold up this side of the tape measure, this gives us a uh, 219-inch diagonal. It's over 18 feet. So this TV is going to be completely massive. It's supposed to go into your home. (laughs) But not only is the thing huge, they're also saying the display is going to be like nothing you've ever seen. I'll read you Samsung's description. They say, these transformative TV displays are made up of individual modules of self-emissive micro-LEDs featuring millions of inorganic red, green, and blue microscopic LED chips that emit their own light to produce brilliant colors on screen. All I can say to that is, my TV is really lame. <laughs> now, I don't really think that. Uh, to be honest, I, th- I think the wall sounds ridiculous. And chances are good that a lot of you agree with me. But do you see what they're trying to do? They're trying to stir up discontentment in us. What we have may be perfectly fine, but if they can tap into our desires and our tendency to compare ourselves with others, they know they'll make a few sales. And let's be clear, we all have a weak spot. A new TV may not be your thing, but we all have something. Maybe you're tired of driving that same old car. Or maybe your friends have been taking these great vacations and you're thinking, it's about time we took a trip like that. Or maybe it's a boat or an RV or a new house. We all have desires that could steal our contentment if we let them. But now here's a difficult question. When does a healthy desire become unhealthy? Where's the line? Am I saying that it's wrong to own a TV or a car? Uh, Am I saying it's wrong to take a vacation? Well, if that is what I'm saying, I'm a huge hypocrite because our family owns not one but two vehicles. We also take a vacation of some kind just about every year, and and we have a comfortable house with plenty of stuff inside. But that's the difficulty, isn't it? On the one hand, we all own a TV, and we think, yeah, that's probably appropriate. On the other hand, we'd say the, the wall is a little extreme. So again, where is the line? Where does healthy turn into unhealthy? How can we know when we should say no? Let's go back to our friend Paul 
from Philippians 4. What did he say? He said, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So, does Paul tell us where the line is? Does he tell us when enough becomes too much? He doesn't really do that, does he? What he gives us is an attitude, the attitude of contentment. So it must be that when we learn to develop this attitude, we'll have a better idea of where to draw the line. So we need to hear more of what Paul has to say on this subject. And to do that, we can flip over to another letter he wrote. This one's called 1 Timothy. Let's read a few verses in 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting with verse 6. And Paul writes here, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I think we're on to something here. Is it wrong to have money? Is it wrong to have things? No, we already covered that. So where do things become problematic? Well, look at verse 10. For the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. See, we were not made to love money or pursue material things. We were made to love and pursue God. We were made by him, and we were also made for him. And that may not sound like an earth-shattering concept at first, but let's think about this for a second. What do most people say they want out of life? A lot of times you hear people say, I just want to be happy. And when they talk about their kids, they say, you know, whatever happens, I just want my kids to be happy. But you know what? We were not made to pursue our own happiness We were not made for ourselves. And if we think that's why we're here, we'll do all kinds of things trying to be happy. We'll pursue those internal desires and we'll compare ourselves with others and we'll listen to those messages that say the only way to be happy is to buy this or do that or whatever. But the irony is when we give up this crazy pursuit and we run after God instead, we end up getting contentment as a byproduct. See, we're far more likely to find happiness by giving up our own desires and pursuing God's desires. That's why Paul makes that statement back in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And you know what's really interesting about this? You and I have a choice. Contentment is a choice discontentment is also a choice. If you have a cucumber in your hand and you look over and you see somebody else with a grape, nothing is forcing you to be discontent. You can choose to be just as satisfied as you were before you saw the grape. But what's going to help you make that choice? For one thing, you can look at the formula that Paul gave us. And some of you probably noticed that this verse works like a a math equation. Godliness plus contentment equals 
great gain. And when we look at that equation, we see we're the ones who benefit when we pursue God above everything else. The great gain we receive is more peace, more freedom, and less of the stress that comes from things like debt. So that's the positive motivation. But let's flip this equation around. If we replace godliness with selfishness, and we replace contentment with discontentment, where do we end up? Well, here's the truth on the other side. Selfishness plus discontentment equals great pain. We've seen this, haven't we? We could tell stories, maybe about others, maybe about ourselves. If we let our selfish desires lead us down the path of discontentment, we end up in a world of hurt. So that's the negative motivation. You want pain? Choose to be discontent. But if you want great gain, choose contentment. These are real choices that we make every day. And I could stop right here and say, okay, uh, we know what we need to do. We need to walk out of here and make better choices. We need to choose God over stuff. We need to choose contentment over discontentment. But the truth is, it's not enough to know the right choice. You can find yourself in a situation where you know you should say no, but for some reason, you say yes. And trust me, I get it. And that's when we start to think, well, maybe it's not humanly possible to consistently make the right choice in, in all these situations. But that's why we should go back and look at Paul. It seems like Paul mastered the art of contentment. How did he do that? If you're a cynical person, you might say, well, Paul was not bombarded by thousands of advertisements every day. He didn't have to live in the kind of world that we live in. But I don't think that argument holds up. Because do you know where Paul was when he wrote those words about being content in any and every situation? He was sitting in jail. He was being punished for doing what God told him to do. God gave Paul a mission to take the gospel of Jesus to the Gentile world. So he had been planting churches and leading people to Jesus all over the place. But as he wrote that letter to the Philippians, his mission had been derailed. He had been thrown in prison. So not only was he dealing with financial hardships, he was also dealing with the loss of his freedom. He was being held back from pursuing his purpose and his dreams. You know, one of Paul's main goals was to go to the city of Rome and plant a church there. But that couldn't happen while he was stuck in jail. So I'd say Paul had more legitimate reasons to be discontent than just about any of us. But still, he's the guy who said, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So Paul chose contentment, even in a very difficult situation. But we still need to know, how did he do it? We haven't really answered that yet. Fortunately, he tells us how in the very next verse. This is where Paul says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Philippians 4.13. Some of us thought this verse was about winning a football game. But that's not really it. 
Um, it, it's often taken out of context and used to say something like, I can do whatever I want when I put my mind to it because Jesus gives me the strength to do great things. But we know the context of this passage. Uh, we know what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about contentment. He's, he's talking about being freed up from the desires of always wanting more and more and different and better He's talking about putting God above all of his wants and needs. So how was Paul able to make that choice? Jesus himself gave Paul the strength and the power to make the right choice. Now as we wrap up here, I want to get very practical. If we know that Jesus gives us the strength to choose contentment, how can we invite his strength and power into our lives, into our hearts? Well, I've got some of Paul's secrets to share with you. These are action steps that any of us can take. And before I give you these action steps, uh, I need to say that if you have never started a life-changing relationship with Jesus, you have to begin there. Because the only way to welcome God's spirit and God's power into your life is to give your life to Jesus. So that's the prerequisite for these other steps. But if you do have a relationship with Jesus, then try these things. First, number one, You trust that God is good and that his will is best. Like we said earlier, there will be lots of times when God will tell us to say no, even though we want to say yes. And that moment is kind of a showdown. In that moment, who are you going to trust? Will you trust your own judgment and your own desires or will you say, okay, God, I'll follow your lead here because I know you're good. I know you want what is best for me and for everyone else. And you know better than me what I should do here. So that's step one. And you follow that up by trusting that God will provide what you need. Paul knew this. Paul knew that God is always a faithful provider. In fact, just a few verses later in Philippians 4, he writes, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Now, the tricky part about this is that God does not provide, he does not promise to provide all of our wants, but God does know what we truly need, and he won't leave us hanging there. So once we learn to trust God in these general ways, we need to get more specific and trust God with our money. Now, like we said last week, our money is really God's money anyway, but still we need to to do this. We need to make this choice. The Bible teaches us to give to God first, off the top, before you pay any other bills, before you do any other spending. And we'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks. But you know, if we're going to give to God first, that requires a lot of trust that you're going to have enough to pay the bills after you give to God. And I'll tell you what I've learned. I was taught from a very early age, growing up in a preacher family, I was taught to give at least 10% of my income to God before doing anything else. And that's just been a way of life for me from day one. And you know what? God has always taken care of me. He's always taken care of my family. He's always provided. My wife and I talk about this. We've seen his faithfulness and we're committed to keep trusting him for the rest of our lives. I do realize though, this may feel like a huge leap for some of us. And if so, this may be the action step for you to focus on right now. But if you've already taken those first three steps, I'll give you just one more. And this may be the most powerful secret of all. We can learn what Paul learned. 
He learned to become preoccupied with God's mission. When Paul was sitting in that jail cell, it would have been so easy to focus on himself, think about everything he didn't have. But that's not what he did, was it? What did he do? He pulled out a piece of parchment and he wrote a letter to the followers of Jesus in Philippi. Those people were on his heart because he wanted them to keep growing in Christ and he wanted that church to keep reaching people for Jesus. Instead of thinking about himself, Paul was focused on others. And that's what happens when we become preoccupied with God's mission. We stop focusing on ourselves and what we do or don't have and we focus on people who need to experience God's love. And that, my friends, is the secret to mastering the art of contentment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this privilege to be here today, to know that uh, you are here with us. Lord, I thank you for uh, being the good God that you are. Lord, help us to find rest in you instead of running around trying to pursue our own happiness by meeting our own desires. Lord, teach us how to be content. Teach us how to to show the world a a different way to live. Lord, I pray that for us as individuals and for Plum Creek as a church and, and for your church across the world. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.